In recent years, the world has embraced true crime as one of its most popular genres in entertainment. Though there's no universal explanation for our fascination with criminals, it's clearly here to stay. Joining me today is Adam Targum. Adam has written and produced flagship crime procedures like CSI New York and NCIS New Orleans. Today we'll be talking about his experience with me and my team. Adam has been by our side while we've been investigating the very crimes that inspire the stories he writes about every day. From Storic Media, you're listening to Codename Siren, a true crime podcast with Nina Hobson. My work tends to be uh, centered on crime and poverty and, and drug abuse and domestic violence. And these are all things that while they're abhorrent and not things that I condone in any way, shape, or form, I think the only way that we, as a, a society, as a group of people, is to talk about them, is to investigate them. Obviously, you and I, uh, you know, we connected in sort of a random way, and you know, the opportunity that I was afforded, thanks to knowing you, to start picking your brain and understand some of the things that you had seen in real life, was was an incredible opportunity. When you were writing this stuff, where did you get your research from? One show that I did, we actually had a former NYPD homicide detective. We had several representatives who actually had spent time in a uh, in the medical examiner's office. So we did draw from a lot of uh, real life experiences and real stories, uh, cases that some of the people that we used as advisors had they themselves been involved in. As is the case in television, you know, things have to be uh, sped up and contrived and smushed together. As I like to say to people, uh, DNA results do not come back in three minutes. Not every single fingerprint is in the federal database. Not every bullet that's ever been fired matches to a, the striations in a, in a gun. So really what, what is, is most interesting to me is that it is truly a uh, investigation of crimes is a puzzle. Right. It's a mystery that people have to put together, that have to use instinct, that have to use intuition. And those are always the stories that have fascinated me the most, is that whichever side of uh, law enforcement you're on, whether you're a good guy or a bad guy, there are implications. And that's what I gravitate to. And obviously, I find that you are, you know, the most fascinating uh, representative of that, because in a lot of ways, you've done things that a lot of people haven't done. And also as a, you know, as a strong, vibrant woman in a world that is typically one that's filled with machismo and testosterone, that to me is very inspiring. Thank you. I appreciate that. Let, let's just quickly say how we met, because I'm not sure whether it was super Hollywood or super not Hollywood. Let's just say that you may have been, you know, getting some uh, aesthetic services from uh, an esthetician that I may or may not be related to in some way. And uh, I think some posters of some of my work were up in the uh, up in the room. And uh, I, I think I heard about what you had done. You mentioned, well, that was interesting, some of the work that I had done. And then we fostered a meeting. And as they say, our people got together, mine called your people, your people called my people. And, uh, you know, the next thing we we were talking about was the idea of bringing some of your stories, your true stories and true experiences to the screen. And that's something that, you know, I, we're still working on, obviously, and it's something that's very important uh, for people to realize that the things that they see on TV, you know, really do happen. You know, unfortunately, people do awful things to each other in real life. 
I just want to clarify, I was only having my eyebrows done. I don't have Botox. But But obviously we we did meet and you came out on a couple of our jobs with us to observe. And it was fascinating for me to kind of be in your eyes. and, And like you say, you don't always get a DNA result in an episode, more like several months when you've nagged everybody. So what what was that like for you? Because you, I mean, we we did some dark stuff. You know, it's interesting because you know I certainly have a knowledge base of what the realities of it are, having spoken to so many, um, you know, professionals in the in the law enforcement and investigation community. But to actually go out, you know, myself and be immersed in it, it it's a completely different experience. Certainly, the notion of patience. And perseverance is something that comes along. You know, the idea of a stakeout, you know, uh, in TV and film, uh, an extended stakeout usually lasts uh, about three or four minutes. You know, you can time lapse and, you know, you go through three sets of burgers. In reality, you're going through seven sets of burgers and trying to, uh, you know, not go to the bathroom for 12 hours because you might miss something in that one second that you're gone. Um, And it's a lot of nothing happening. Um, I know certainly, you know, in the case of, you know, surveillance, waiting for people to go someplace, waiting for people to do something, they're not necessarily operating on your schedule. So it's so very interesting to see uh, how much work goes into actually capturing that one moment or that one piece of information or that one lead that you've literally been looking for days or weeks or months. And, uh, you know, your whole investigation, your whole case is, is based on new information based on leads that take you to the next place. And and it seems uh, even more interesting, obviously, knowing what really goes into it. Literally like when you're in a movie theater, right? And you're in the middle of a movie and you're eating your popcorn and you're drinking your big Diet Coke and, uh, you know, you don't want to go to the bathroom because you know you're going to miss something and you wait as long as you can and you run out to the bathroom and you come back and, of course, you've missed something. I, I won't talk about the the finer details of the job that we were working on, but there's one that springs to mind because you've mentioned sit, sitting and doing stakeout for many hours. And that was a very active stakeout by stakeout standards. But we obviously, we were really active on that one. We had been sat there for a number of hours and then suddenly the target moved. And so that's when obviously it kicks in. Well, there's an incredible adrenaline rush. It's like anything else. You're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting, and then that moment comes, and and then you act. It's interesting. In that downtime, you know, you do become a little bit relaxed. You spend a lot of time with the people you're working with. You make jokes. You do whatever you need to do to pass the time, and in an instant, you know, it's go time. The green light is on, and everybody just snaps into professional mode. It's incredible to see the level uh, level of focus, the level of training, the level of expertise. You know, it's not something that anybody can just do. And I know certainly in, in your case, it's a lifetime of of real world experience and and seeing things that prepare you for the best and the worst of people. And the only way that you can possibly be ready for those you know experiences is to have knowledge and have gone through them before. So it's it's pretty inspiring. It's pretty impressive. That was obviously an operation and we did surveillance and we did a lot of sitting around. But then we went on a job and I just want to say, obviously, there's there's not every, like you say, not everyone can do this. There's certain people that we would allow to even view what we do. And we went on a, a sex trafficking operation and you came along and 
fortunately, you have a background, an understanding of firearms and safety. We briefed, I think, at 11 o'clock at night and we put bulletproof vests on. I haven't really spoken to you about that. I've just, we were a team. We, we briefed, we debriefed, we went and did the thing. As you said, I do have a background in, in, in firearm training and certain safety training. And I've, you know, I've gone through a lot of law enforcement programs and a lot of military training programs in order to better have a sense of the reality so that I can write what I write in an authentic manner. That does not mean that I've necessarily been out on a lot of real jobs or any at all. But I will say it's no joke when you are suddenly in an environment that all of the worst case scenarios that you've now trained for are actually a possibility. It it changes everything. You know, in a lot of training scenarios, you do. You run worst case scenarios. Somebody comes at you with a rubber gun or someone jumps at you from behind with a plastic knife and you react. But the truth is, there's always a built-in knowledge that you're safe, that there's no real inherent danger in those moments. But when you're suddenly out there, it's an all-encompassing feeling where all around you, you know that the danger is real. I personally didn't feel any fear. I didn't feel what I felt was an instinct that you prepared for this. You know what you would need to do. Now, of course, I say that knowing that I was with you and with several other very highly trained members of your team. So I knew that I was, you know, not the first line of defense, but the the level of concentration that you need in that moment. And it wasn't until we were out of the uh, danger zone that, you know, that suddenly, you know, we could all breathe again, myself, especially. But as I said, it's no joke. It's real. It's scary out there in the real world. The night that we went out, we were faced with sex traffickers who don't want us to stop their flow of funding or their, you know, their their business. And they don't really care about what what they have to do to prevent us stopping that. So, yeah, we had bulletproof vests on. People had firearms. You know, the thing that, that, that we talked about and that is so near and dear to my heart as a storyteller, as a, you know, of a, uh, a student of humanity and, and the human condition is the things that I saw, the things that you see are, are pretty horrifying, right? To see, to see children out there on the street, as you said, you know, the, the, the product that these people are selling, you know, their cash cow for lack of a better term that they don't want to give up. But they're not treating these children as human beings, right? They're a commodity. And and to be out there to see that, and as a father myself, um, you know, and I know you're a parent and, and other members of the team are parents, to be out there and see the most innocent amongst us being victimized, being being taken advantage of, the most vulnerable, it's it's something that stays with you. And I'll tell you, it stayed with me since that night and 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 will continue to always. And that's the thing that I talk to you about so much is that is that in that moment, you have to disconnect and you have to make it a job, right? You're there for a purpose. Yes, the purpose is to save these children. But but in that moment, it can't be about emotion. It can't be about feeling. It has to be about staying safe and accomplishing the goal. So I, I always find it so incredible that that you and, and people that do the incredible heroic work that you do are able to compartmentalize, to see those things and not let the emotion overcome you and, and, and become overwhelming. And that's obviously something that I 
I have actually struggled with at times with myself about how do I do that? How do I separate? Because I know it's, it's, but actually it's a, it's a skill and it's a blessing. And that's why I'm still doing this 30 years on. Um, and it was really interesting because you, you were there as, as part of the team and you were, you were very cool and your, I mean, your firearm skills are incredible and match my team. You were dealing with it all. Like you say, you, you, you've gone away and it's never gone away because we still talk about it and you're part of the organization now, but your wife was the person that was contacting me, which, who I adore. And she was like, make sure you keep him safe. Like, make sure he comes home. He's definitely coming home. But, and that's how we have to think. And the adrenaline is, for me, it's the adrenaline. Like the, on that particular night, it's not a case of we sat and we waited and we waited for things to move like we did on the surveillance operation. It's like we drive into that area and we're sitting target. So for the whole, however long we were there, three hours or whatever it was, doing what we needed to do without being seen. And we've got to remember that these guys have lots of eyes. We think we were not seen. And, you know, just the little things of let's not go down that road because we're going to get blocked in or let's not go there because that trafficker has got eyes on the corner. And then we came away from that and we drove home. But for me, that adrenaline is so full on. How did you deal with it as someone who it wasn't your job? I thought about all of the success stories that you've shared with me from other missions, other other operations where there is a child who gets to come home. There is a child that gets taken off the street that is is put through a program that will bring some level of normalcy and 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 a mental and emotional health back to their life and ultimately reunite them with their with their families. And that to me is the reason why you have to go out and do it. And I know that not every story has a happy ending. That's not the world that we live in. Some of them are pretty awful endings, but it feels to me that if you can save one child or two children or three children, that every single one of them makes all of the dark and, and, and harrowing sides of the job worth it. And, and I think that that's, you know, at least for me, it's just a reminder to always keep telling yourself why you're doing it. And for me, it was that weekend. I remember after this operation, I, I spent a little too much time with my teenage daughter. And I mean by that is she kicked me out of her room. Enough, dad, I get it. So it is. It was me compensating and say, I need to be in, in a loving, caring environment and, and hug the people that I love because not every person has that luxury. So I'm going to switch the, the conversation a little bit. So you can be perfectly honest right now, Adam, because you're not a paid member of the team. Did I get stroppy and stressful at any time? I don't, you know, I wouldn't call it stressful. Um, I have a stressful job too. Sometimes I think, I think it's about intensity and focus. And, and I think that what I saw with you was, you know, you turning it up a notch, right. And you turning it up from, from a six to a seven to an eight. I never saw you got to a nine and 10. And I imagine that if, if the, you know, shit really hit the fan that you would absolutely go to 10 and do everything you needed to do. So no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe it that way. I would say that I think that there was a hyper focus and vigilance. And, and I think that, you know, as the leader of a team, you set the tone and did what you needed to do to make, you know, to make everybody else as focused as you were. I think I probably was a bitch at some point, to be honest. <laughs> I wouldn't categorize it as that. 
I mean, it's been a, a really good experience being able to work with you. And I'm fascinated about what you do. And I mean, you, you've worked on some big shows. And is there anything that you think that people should know from what you've experienced? For me, everything is an interesting origin story. You know, I don't think that somebody wakes up one day and says, wow, I'm the CEO of a company or wakes up one day and says, I'm going to be a bank robber. Or, you know, I think that there's always an interesting path that it starts from, you know, and as I said before, when I was growing up and playing cops and robbers with my friend and always wanted to be the bad guy, I always wondered as a little girl, you know, were you playing cops and robbers? Did you always want to be the cop? Did you always want to be the good girl? And is that the beginning of this, this incredible journey that you've gone on? You know what? I think growing up, I wanted to be the bad, the cop, not the cop, the robber. But in reality, I knew I was the cop. And that time kind of sucked because it was always cooler to be the robber. And then obviously, you know, the, the story of me watching Cagney and Lacey and, and that kind of became, okay, so just admit it. You want to be the, you want to be the cool cop. I don't just want to be a cop. I want to be yeah. a cool cop. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. And then obviously I became very justice driven and it was about making a difference, whatever that was. And maybe in a, being a little bit too risky and at certain times, but you know what, if it made a difference, that, that was all that mattered. And that's probably what the last 30 years has been about. And that's, and that's so amazing to me that you knew that you knew here you were, you know, you wanted, you wanted to, you know, be the bad guy. You wanted to be the robber because that was more exciting, but innately you knew that, no. So I'm going to ask you this question after you said, after this lifetime journey now, I, I wonder if you think uh, being on the other side, on the cop side, is actually cooler and more fun. Because you get to do a lot of the same things, but not uh, run the risk of having to uh, go to jail for the rest of your life. Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I get to see the dark side, and I get to see what other people do. And sometimes it's like, well, that's cool. Crime pays. But in reality, <laughs> there's a reason that there are laws. You know, it's so interesting you talk about that because... I for me, when I'm writing a TV show and I'm exploring a, a, a crime that someone committed, no matter how heinous or relatively innocuous it might be, it's always my goal to get into the heads of the perpetrator and understand a little bit of why. I'm curious in the real world, in your experiences, and again, you've dealt with you know, some things that are that are not the worst thing a person can do. And you've dealt with some things that are literally the absolute worst thing that a person could do to another human being. I'm curious if there's ever any thought on your mind about the story of the person who commits the crime and, and understanding what brought them to this place. And if you find out that that person came from a from an abusive relationship or if they had a terrible upbringing. Does it ever factor into how you feel about these people? Not that you ever condone them or ever say, hey, I'm going to take the handcuffs off and let you run away. But is there ever a moment where you say, you know what? I do actually feel bad for this person. I do understand. I wouldn't have made this choice, but this is what got them here. Yeah. And I think that's a great question because, um, and, and it's very interesting because when I was a cop and bearing in mind, I joined the police at 18, I was very young. And I was very black and white. You know, this is the law. You break it. That's my job to make you accountable. Whatever the crime was, whatever the circumstances, because I was programmed that that's what you do as a cop. When I switched from being a cop and being involved in the worlds that I'm involved in now, which is, is still, I'm not a law enforcer anymore. 
I'm somebody who tries to get justice for clients or for whoever it might be. And it's very much made me more flexible, I think, and more understanding. And you're aware of of one of the guys who works for me, Chris. He's first up to say, I'm a bad dude and I've done bad shit and like never trust me. He's that person. But he's also very Sounds weird. He's he's a very caring person. He's somebody that I would go to if I needed someone. And, you know, if I was in dire straits, he would be the go-to because I know that our relationship, we would, you know, he would be there for me. I had a case in the UK and it was it was a very, very sad case. It was a family who had been abused by their parents all their lives. And the kids ranged from baby to 16-year-old. And they would go to the pub on a Sunday lunchtime and say, hey, the kids are home, go do what you want to do. And the kids were, were horrendously abused. So when they eventually, we, we got the parents, we knew what was going on. And it was kind of a, a sex trafficking ring, but it was parental. And we took the kids and they took all the kids into the same care, into the same foster care, because they didn't want to separate them because they were going through enough. And it was really interesting because the boy of the family was 16 and he raped his sister and I had to interview him. And when I, and I was a cop at this time. And when I interviewed him, I was like, I'm having to interview him as a rapist. This kid is a victim. Yet the law is saying you have to treat him as a rapist. He has to have the same consequences. And it was it was horrendous because that's how he was treated. Now in the world that I I'm in, and I don't have those boundaries and those expectations that that's what I'm supposed to do for society. You know, I I meet some great people now. Have they done bad things in the past? Absolutely, they have. Does it necessarily make them a bad person? No, it means that they've made bad choices or they've had bad backgrounds or bad circumstances. And, you know, I'm privileged. My kids are privileged. I've worked all my life. My parents have worked all, all my life. This, the same as, as you, Adam, and your kids, and we do anything for them. So when I give somebody $10 on the side of the road who's saying that they're homeless, you know what, if they go and spend that $10 on, on some drugs, it doesn't matter because whatever they are less fortunate than me because they're stood on the side of the road and I'm not. I say all the time in my work and in my, my in my life to people that I don't think black and white is as clearly delineated as, you know, as we're taught. I think that people live in the gray. We all live in the gray. and And to say that there are really, really bad people, of course, there's that extreme. And to say there are really, really good people, of course, there's that extreme. But those are very rare, rare examples. And I think everyone else falls somewhere else sort of in that middle ground. You know, you talk about Chris and knowing his background. To me, good person, someone who, who when he has the opportunity to do the right thing, does the right thing. When he has an opportunity to help people out, he helps people out. There is a moral fiber in there. There is a code of conduct that he follows. You know, it's it's the joke of the Robin Hood syndrome, right? If somebody has a whole lot and they're stingy and don't want to give it to the people that don't have any, maybe 
you know, we help redistribute that wealth a little bit. Is that the worst thing in the world? I don't know. I, I think one of the problems, obviously, we have with policing, and obviously this has been a real hot button topic for a long time, we all know that just like any other industry, just like any other segment of society, there are good people and bad people and gray people in law enforcement as well. But at the end of the day, question is, when the actions really have consequence, when they really matter, what does that person choose to do? And I think that that's really important. You know, I think that when a jury, you know, has to decide whether they're sending someone to a death sentence or a life sentence, they do need to take into account what kind of upbringing they had. You know, every action has a reaction. As a parent, from from the very first second I looked into my daughter's eyes when she was literally one second old in the world, my instant fear was, I'm going to screw this up somehow. And someday she will be sitting in therapy and talking about how her dad screwed things up in minute one of her life. And uh, I hope that's not the case. But I think the world is complicated. And I do think that if we take into account context, right, sometimes somebody says something that may be offensive, but they don't mean to offend you. That matters. Somebody sometimes does something that, you know, that hurts you in a way, that's not their intention and that does matter. So I think people just need to be a little bit more open, a little bit more fluid, a little bit more contemplative before they act. And in the extreme cases, yeah, obviously there are uh, there are things that need to be done. And, and I'm thrilled that there are very good people like you out there. I don't know. I'm hopeful that there's a resolution. Maybe not in my lifetime, but someday. There's, there's good cops, bad cops, good criminals, bad criminals. That's that's kind of what we're saying it's, here. And, and it's you true. Know. You know, it's interesting. You were talking before about, you know, when we were on that operation and they knew we were there. You know, there's this misnomer that all cops are really smart and all criminals are really stupid. Not the case. All cops are not really smart and great at their jobs and don't have all the answers in the same way we say that forensics doesn't always give you the instant answer you're looking for. And not all criminals are idiots. There's some really smart, sophisticated ones out there. You know, I know we've talked at length about how, uh, you know, the trafficking channels of children now are accomplished, how how these criminal organizations have very sophisticated teams of experts, whether it's in technology, whether it's in communications, whether it's in in accounting. They have their own support teams that are educated and trained. So it makes fighting them that much more difficult. So it's not a simple solution, right? Because Every time there's a new advancement in law enforcement techniques, the criminal side finds a way to thwart that and comes up with something new. It's uh, it literally is cat and mouse, right? It's it's the cops and robbers with kids, but now it now it's the uh, now it's the uh, real stakes. It's a business. It's a business for them, just like it's a business for me to track them down and bring people to justice in whatever way we do as private investigators or you know but it's a business and yes there are bad people please don't get me wrong you know and anyone who hurts a, a kid and someone who's vulnerable that to me makes them it, even when there's a background that we have to understand but you know when it's a money transaction whether it's it's a scammer and you know we've talked about scams before and people have lost everything and dating scams you know People are very vulnerable and, and they're at a time when they feel that they can, 
you know, give things out. And then, you know, that's a bad person to me because they're using somebody's vulnerability and it's a financial game. And there are absolutely, there are levels and there's an understanding and it's a very complex world. And that's something that I I have learned. And hopefully that makes me better. Learned, but also sacrificed. And that's the other thing that, that's always amazed me about, you know, your your experiences, your life, what you do, what you continue to do, your dedication to it, is that you had to make tremendous personal sacrifices in your life. You've given up you know, important moments, you've given up time, you, you've had to miss things, you've had to be away. So my question, I guess, that I have for you and if those had is that when you do reunite a family, when you do get to make that call and tell a parent that their child is alive and, and is coming home safe and sound to them, does that make it all worth it? Does it, does it erase any, any sort of, you know, bad taste in your mouth about sacrifices that you made? Yeah, I mean, obviously, and I think you were kind of around at the time when I had a broken shoulder and I couldn't get anyone to go and rescue the two kids in Vegas. So I broke a shoulder four days before and I got on a plane and I went to Vegas and ended up with a gun at my head and um, with a broken shoulder. Not a great move, but it was that passion and that I can make a difference. And we did get those kids, which was super cool. But yeah, one person, one pat on the back not even a pat on the back but a, a hug from the team and say you know what we haven't been to sleep for five days but we've just got a kid to safety that makes it that I can explain to my kids they understand why mom made those sacrifices and and people say to me why are you still going why are you still on the streets and that's a real big question because I'm way too old and the guys really don't need me and they're super fit but it's will I ever give up probably not I know I don't need to say this, but I, I know your kids love you, but I, I also know that they're extremely proud of you and they probably wouldn't change anything either. And that, and that's, uh, I'd like that, that is, that's what it means to be a true, you know, hero and, and to be someone that's a role model. And I, I, I know you've done that for me. I tell everyone I can about uh, how incredible you are. And I do think that if people cared, you know, about what's going on out there, just 10% of the way that you do, I, I think we could start making strides in the right direction. It's rare for someone to go to the lengths that Adam has to understand the world he writes about. There's no doubt that being part of these investigations has left a lasting impression and informed the way he feels about criminals and their victims. It's given him a more safety-conscious outlook and empathetic view of both sides of the law, and we hope it will come through in his writing for years to come. Join me next week. I'll be talking to Laura McCulloch, an Australian actress that went missing after meeting a man she connected with on a dating app. Until next time, I'm Nina Hobson, and this has been Codename Siren. Siren.